Ciao amici, welcome to Cinema Italiano, a podcast dedicated to the Italian experience as told by film. Today we'll be talking about Luca Guadagnino's 2017 film, Call Me By Your Name, and we have a special guest today, Albert. Hello, I'm glad to be here. Um, so Albert, you're our first guest on this show. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I work in Animal Kingdom in Walt Disney World. Um, I really got interested in Italian film when Turner Classic Movies broadcast Cinema Paradiso in the early 2000s. And then I, um, I blind bought the movie Il Postino, which was co-directed by Massimo Troisi and Michael Radford. And it was really those two that kind of led to me seeking out some more Italian films, usually from Criterion. And um, one thing that always bothers me in a sense is I've been working on how to perfect name-dropping the title La Strada in a short story that I have been tinkering around with for years. But literally there's a sentence where I always have a character thinking to himself, like, does he go on the date with someone or does he leave and go to the film festival where he wants to see La Strada? And it's, <laughs> hopefully I'll figure it out one day. Oh, excited to read it once it's um, in print. So kind of going back from your background with Italian film, kind of how did you first hear about and then what were your first impressions when you saw Call Me By Your Name? I first heard about Call Me By Your Name when I read that James Ivory was working on the screenplay. And Ivory, of course, is the well-known director for Merchant Ivory. And I absolutely love A Room With A View, Howard's End, Maurice, you know, the big ones. And so I knew, like, if he's working on a screenplay after, like, so many years of directing, it must be a very important project for him. So I kept my eye on it over the years. And then I saw who was being cast in it. Um, Army Hammer was the one that I actually knew more than Timothy Chalamet. So I thought this is going to be a very interesting take on whoever this character is. And so I kind of kept my eye on that film because of Ivory and Hammer and really discovered Chalamet through this film, too. Yeah, I think Chalamet, like exploded after this movie it's kind of crazy to think it only came out for mainstream audiences like less than a year and a half ago because it feels like the impact has been so monumental i mean and luca guadagnino too has really risen in prominence also um i remember hearing about it when it came out at sundance as like one of the better movies i don't know if i knew james ivory or who was attached to it but knowing there's usually like one or two like prestige lgbt movies per year I figured, okay, this is one to kind of keep an eye out on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was always on my radar. And then as kind of award season was coming up that year, or kind of later in the year, like fall, and it was kept being brought up in lists of the year's best, I knew like, okay, this is definitely one to keep an eye out for. And I read the book beforehand, which I wasn't in love with, but there were things I liked about it. Um, but the movie I was just in love with. I thought it adapted the story really great. Um, it kind of fixed a lot of things I didn't, click with as well in the book um so yeah it's a i like it good movie <laughs> funny you bring up the book because i did the same thing i read it before i saw the film but i mainly read it because i wanted to compare how ivory would adapt it again i kept thinking about this from the writer's perspective like how is he going to take something that clearly was a well-received book and turn it into a movie that is getting so much buzz because i remember when i first heard the film i thought okay this is probably just could be a nice little art house film that gets you know like a probably late summer release and it's forgotten for a while and then it just blew up into this big phenomenon of sorts and I was like oh wow this is really something that I never expected but I'm kind of glad to see is happening and so throughout November December like 
I kept waiting for Call Me By Your Name to come to Orlando, and I had to wait until freaking mid-January for it to get here. <laughs> but it was so it was so um, frustrating to check on social media and seeing like friends or accounts from like New York and stuff talking about Call Me By Your Name, and I'm like, I can't see it. I want to see it. I'll fly up to New York to see it, and I almost did, but that's another story <laughs> for another time. Well, and it sounds like it was worth the wait going till mid-January. Definitely was. To use Oliver's words, do you want to take a complicated journey through kind of the overall summary of the movie? Oh yeah, sure. Um, just to borrow and plagiarize from the back of the Blu-ray case, it's the summer of 1983 in Italy, and Elio, a precocious 17-year-old, spends his days in his family's villa, transcribing and playing classical music, reading and flirting with his, his friend Marzia. Um, one day, Oliver, a charming American scholar, arrives as the annual summer intern, tasked with helping Elio's father, an eminent professor. Elio and Oliver discover the heady beauty of awakening desire over the course of a summer that will alter their lives forever. Now let's talk through some of the key plot points and moments that really stood out to us. Sure. Um, I think one of the most striking things, especially for those who have read the book, is how vibrant and exciting the opening credits are. Mm -hmm. In the novel, things move really slow. It's kind of murky. It's not the most riveting read, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) Whereas Call Me By Your Name as a film opens up with this really joyful vibrant piano music um, and with these you know kind of vivid colorful photos of statues so you're immediately kind of snapped to pay attention um, and are engaged in a really kind of invigorating way yeah i think it also helps set up the idea for how this film is going to be a celebration of the beauty of the world around us not necessarily just the statues but also even the whimsical way the music is playing over them and it leads into that that tranquil beginning with just somewhere in northern Italy, and you see little Timmy like peeking his head out the window. It sets the stage well for, in like very blunt terms, like it's a movie filled with happy things and joyful things. And it's interesting too with the opening title, or kind of for the place making, the title card reads somewhere in northern Italy. Mm-hmm. To be honest, up until researching for this episode, I had read that as being kind of deliberately vague or kind of refusing to name a specific spot. Yeah. But looking, but when I was looking more at the film's geography, you know, the sense I get from that region of Italy is you have these larger towns like Crema, Bergamo, as well as smaller ones like Pandino, Montodine, and countless others that are kind of urban little centers in and of themselves with piazzas and churches and apartment buildings. But other than those central hubs, it is all villas and farms peppered throughout. So I don't know if the somewhere in Northern Italy is as much vague as it is like, there is not a town immediately where they live. They're kind of on their own in this little paradise. Yeah, I think also it would respond to like the way you said it was just like a lot of villas and little smaller buildings and like enclaves that gradually come together to form larger towns and so by saying somewhere in it's also a way of like not exactly pinpointing but almost telling the viewers this could ha- this could happen to any town it could happen to 
this one here, that one there. Like this love story could happen to any two people, but we're gonna focus on these two in this specific situation. In addition to the geography of Italy itself, the geography of the house is pretty fun to watch. Um, Elio and Oliver share a bathroom and their bedrooms are connected through this bathroom. And when Oliver initially moves in, Elio closes all the doors literally between the two bedrooms, kind of making clear there's a separation between them. He's not interested in kind of fostering that connection. And then on the flip side, a few scenes later, they're changing to go down to the river to go swimming. Oliver just kind of strolls in through the open bathroom door. Army Han- or <laughs> Oliver's door is wide open as he's changing into his swimsuit. So you can total you can see the difference in terms of where Elio's at, in terms of where he wants to foster a connection, whereas Oliver is his door is literally open. Yeah, Oliver is much more like we keep using the word open, but he's much more open about himself in a sense because like he doesn't see any reason to have that kind of modicum of privacy. And like I'm sure in the back of his head he's probably thinking Elio's probably gonna watch me if I keep this door open, so I'm gonna keep it open. And it's also more about him trying to break down the barriers, I think. Because early on, Oliver is interested in Elio. He just doesn't know how to show it. But they do have that one moment when he's playing volleyball and he reaches over and kind of starts massaging Elio's shoulder. And Elio takes it the wrong way. But also, he's taking it, in a sense, the right way, but he pulls away. And, like, that's another way of closing himself off. Like, he's trying to say, like, no physical contact whatsoever. Like, But Elio himself... I'm rambling now. Elio himself, he's got that whole look-but-don't-touch mentality when he's, like, observing Oliver throughout the first, like, half hour of the film. When it's interesting to think about how would or could that have played differently if it happened when they were by themselves rather than in front of all of Elio's friends out in the open. Yeah. Certainly in front of Marzia, who at that point, I think Elio is still kind of dating. Yeah. Next, we want to talk through how Call Me By Your Name reflects Italian society, the region, and the culture. Well, one thing that I found intriguing was that they make sure to specify this is northern Italy. And um, earlier last year, I had seen the film Rocco and His Brothers, and one of the prevalent themes about that film is that this is a family from the southern regions, which is more, I guess you could say, traditional in values, moving up north to have a better life for themselves. And so... It intrigued me because it's kind of parallel to the American sensibilities of North and South, how there's the industrial North and then the, I guess, the more homespun South regions. And like, what's the difference between these two regions? Why is it important that we differentiate between the two of them? And you think more about the history of like what North and South means in different cultures. And the North is almost always about the progressive change. And the South is almost always trying to hold on to these traditional old world values and so just in my reading of the film specifying specifically that this has to be in the northern Italy kind of says this is a progressive view on Italy at the time and also just a way to have contemporary audiences react and sympathize with these characters based on their own understandings of north and south yeah absolutely I think something else so we know that the father is a professor the mother is certainly very educated. I guess we don't know if she works. Um, but thinking about, you know, in very broad strokes, Northern Italy 
tends to be kind of more educated, more sophisticated than Southern Italy and Sicily. Um, And even thinking of the history of Florence, you know, the center of the Renaissance, you know, it is where people go to think and to create and to study. Mm -hmm. And I think something that's different about the two regions, or at least with this family in particular, is this family of three has a massive villa. They probably have more servants than there are members of the family. (laughs) Yeah. They definitely have kind of the agency and the means for leisure, art and study, they aren't working class. They don't seem to really be doing any work besides looking at slides this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, to your point as well, kind of because they have because they have almost the room to be more more free thinking and to be more open minded. Um, I think that kind of helps facilitate a story like this transpiring and kind of an open mindedness to this kind of love. And plus, we also have to consider that this is not even their regular home. This is their summer home. Because P- Professor Perlman clearly is an American professor who has, I guess you could say, a French-Italian wife. And, like, Timmy, or not Timmy, <laughs> Elio speaks, like, a multitude of languages. And so to be fluent in all these, he'd have to be, he'd have to be like, native to each region. So it would make sense, like, during the school year, he's probably at some stuffy northeastern, like, public school or private school during the summers and winters they go off to Italy because that's like probably the mother's homeland in a sense and so he grows up with this much more open view of the culture around him and he probably sees himself slightly above Oliver because Oliver is just an American and I think that's probably why he was also closed off on the onset because it was just oh here's another one of dad's American students but at the same time like this one was different because there are moments where like he shows there's more to him besides his Americanness. For sure. And that, that's a good point about almost the kind of person Elio is because you get the sense that even among his group of friends, you know, maybe he's the most bookish or intellectual among mm-hmm. them, but it seems like they all know French and Italian at least. Yeah. seems like a little bit of English as well. So no matter whether somewhere in northern Italy is their vacation homes or it's where they're home for good. These are all, like, wise beyond their years, kids running around. Yeah. Um, so it's already kind of a different different kind of youth than what we're probably used to. <laughs> Plus, generationally, they are the youth of, like, the early 80s, so that's already 30-odd years removed from us today. But I think if we look at this also from the American perspective, the early 80s is right before the HIV-AIDS crisis. And so there is still a sense of an an innocence, although it's still slightly taboo to have such prominent, like, LGBTQ, like, themes or stories in cinema at the time. Like, think about William Friedkin's, um, think about William Friedkin's, um, Cruising from 1980. Like, that was controversial at the time, but, and it's, it's controversial still now, I think. But, like, those films were, like, one out of every, like, 200 films coming out of Hollywood. And by having this film set during that pre-crisis era, it's also speaking to, like, how difficult it is for them to portray this. But also by setting it there and having us in this mindset of it in the future, in a sense, like, it normalizes it, which I think is what's important. It normalizes it and says, like, this is 
a love story that we're setting before the crisis, but could be applicable any time of the year, any time of the century or the decade or whatever. Because the important thing is not just about the LGBTQ themes, but also just that universe, universality of love. Because Elio, he's, he's 17 years old, he's raging hormones all over the place, and so he's still trying to figure himself out. And this particular summer, he figured it out with Marcia, but more importantly, with Oliver. And so he's still in that innocent stage. This is before his own crisis, I guess you could say. Well, yeah, and even thinking of Oliver returning to New York, or I guess we don't know if it's New York, but I think we assume it's New England-ish academia. You know, if he returned to that region kind of as a gay man, how different things would be in his near future than if he married a woman. Mm -hmm. Another point that you brought up that I thought was really interesting was around kind of religion and specifically the quote, Jews of discretion. Do you want to go more into that? Yeah, because one of the things that they talk about in the film that Elio points out to Oliver is that his mother calls them Jews of discretion. Essentially that openly they can be whoever they are, in a sense, but privately, like in the privacy of their their room and their beliefs, they are Jewish. And it's interesting that they choose to mask this part of their identity, but then Oliver's so very open about it. He openly wears his Star of David. And for all intents and purposes, not that there's indicators to say what kind of religion you are, but speaking broadly in broad terms, you could walk down the street and you wouldn't think Oliver is Jewish unless you saw that Star of David. But because he makes it prominent, that's his indicator in a sense. And Elio, because he and his mother and his father are Jewish, they choose not to show that. I saw that almost as using religion as a coded way of talking about sexuality. Likewise, you could walk down the street and not know that someone was gay unless they had, and again, I'm using broad terms here, like an indicator. And I don't know what the equivalent would be for an indicator, like what what Star of David is there in the LGBTQ to say, like, hey, I'm gay. But you could walk down the street and not know unless someone told you specifically. And I think just the way that we mask our private selves with our public personas is something that's touched upon in this film through religion as a way of speaking about that, the sexuality of people. Well, and again, not to stereotype, but that's, if the idea is um, kind of being discreet around identity from a religious sense, it's interesting to foil that with the couple who comes and visits the parents who are a gay couple. Oh, yeah. They're, they're dressed flamboyant. super loud and colorful. Um, so in a sense, again, I hate to stereotype, but you, you can look at them and tell right away, okay, they're gay. Yeah, I think because just in general, like the idea of indicators to determine sexuality or gender or religion is things that we kind of teach ourselves to look out for, but it's not necessarily always going to be a truthfulness to it. Like, for example, someone could be dressed ostentatious on the street, and it could just be, like, a work costume. I'm speaking from the mindset of someone that works in Disney, and all our costumes are ugly and ostentatious, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, and 
I mean, even we, yes, we do see Elio kind of start to get more in touch with who he is and where he's the star of David. David. Yeah. But he also doesn't seem like the kind of guy who wants to tie himself to be one thing. Yeah. Like he never even describes himself as American or French <laughs> or Italian. You know, the word gay is famously never said in this movie. Um, you know, almost like with anyone, it's like he doesn't, there isn't a catch-all identity yeah. that he falls under. Like he's refusing the labels that people would put on him. Another recurring theme in the film is art, sculpture, and literature, as well as how all the characters engage with those. Um, Albert, you had an interesting point about the scene when the characters are looking at slides of some ancient statues. Yeah, this occurs about 70 minutes in the film. And it's notable because this is possibly the only scene that's not told from Elio's point of view. Now, Elio figures very heavily in the entire film, but that for this one particular scene, it's literally just Oliver and the professor looking at slides. And Professor Perlman is walking through these slides with Oliver, talking about the sensuality of them and like the artistry behind them. And really, it's the only moment we get to see this story from Oliver's point of view. Because he's listening to um, Professor's fascination with the beauty of these statues, and you can read it on his own face. He's kind of thinking to himself, "Am I allowed to find that beauty, not just in the statues, but like within real life? Like, is he going to allow himself to have this kind of beautiful relationship with Elio?" And I just love that scene because it's the only time we get to hear from Oliver, even though he says not a word in that entire thing. That's interesting. You took that away from that scene. I like. I, I hear you, and I, um, and there's a lot there. Whenever I watch it, I almost think of it as like a comic relief moment because to me, the face Elio makes kind of to the professor. Or I'm sorry, the face Oliver makes to the professor is like, oh my goodness, how long is this gonna last? <laughs> like he looks like he's to the me. He student. looks bored. But I, I, I totally hear you, and yeah, it's interesting too. You know, thinking about it in kind of queer terms as a presumably straight man the professor is able to talk about this art of male nudes expressing their beauty the curvature everything about them in detail really freely openly and passionately whereas if oliver identifies as gay is he able to do the same without almost outing himself you know in a way there's almost like a mismatch in terms of their sexual identity and the things they feel like they can or might feel like they can't say. Also, it speaks to just the aesthetic nature of beauty in a sense. Um, there's there's a meme that goes around the internet once in a while where it's um, one person talking to their friend and the friend is gay and the friend makes some comment like, oh, she looks really hot. And then the other person says, well, I thought you were gay. And he goes, I may be gay, but I'm not blind. And it speaks to that aesthetic nature. Like, you can still recognize a beauty even if there's no sense of attraction to it. And I think with Professor Perlman, like, regardless where he falls on the spectrum, he is truly appreciating all these slides for their aesthetic beauty. And Oliver, because he's still trying to figure things out with Elio, he's he's confused as to how he should be feeling. For sure. I think that kind of brings us to the, kind of the next area I really want to dig into, um, around just statues yes. in general and how they're represented in the movie. 
nerd alert. I'm in the middle of a book right now called The Stones of Florence by Mary McCarthy. So all credit goes to her. She she quotes Michelangelo talking about sculpture as an art form. And he says, by sculpture, I understand an art that takes away superfluous material. And kind of the greater context McCarthy adds is, how does sculpture tie into the Socratic method? Like if you have a massive piece of marble, the idea is that there is the truth and the real art is inside of there. And as a sculptor, your job is to carve away to get to that truth. But that art already exists. You're just getting all the stuff out of the way to unearth it. And I've been thinking about it a lot ever since I read it, and then certainly when watching this movie, because there's statues all over the place. And it's interesting to think about our, with that same mindset, are the statues we're encountering and engaging with, are those the quote-unquote true versions of these characters? Is the true version of them kind of coming out through the course of the events of the film? Kind of a line that a line of dialogue that I thought kind of feeds into that is when the professor gets a phone call about an archaeological find at Lake Garda near Simeone, and he says, nothing has been dug up. It's what has been brought up out of the water. So even the art itself is coming out naturally. Like it already exists and it's simply being kind of unearthed. And then it's interesting as well, once they get to Lake Garda and are the stead they found the statues there on the beach, in the scenes prior, Elio's being kind of a jerk to Oliver and he keeps pushing his buttons. And once they get there, they kind of experience all this excitement along with Elio's father at this find and kind of the amazing history they're witnessing. Mm-hmm. Oliver's holding the broken arm of a statue and Elio offers to shake it and says, truce. So kind of through this moment they're experiencing together through sculpture and through history, they're kind of able to reconcile Elio being a butthead and kind of find that connection again. Yeah, I really love that reading of the of statues, mainly because I never thought about it that way. Like, I just saw... My reading of the film with statues was just that the true aesthetic beauty, like, it was something cold and something that can be, like, created out of the nothingness. But it's nothing that, like, has an emotional resonance. But then when you mentioned the Stones of Florence and how it's all about chipping away to find the truth that's already in there, like, it just changes the conception of what statues are in this film, which I really enjoyed hearing about. And in an interesting way, I feel like it kind of feeds into, as long as we're talking about the classics, um, this idea about the statues is also interesting thinking about it paired with Oliver's area of study. Um, Elio finds a text that Oliver's writing about, um, Heraclitus's The Cosmic Fragments, and in very broad strokes, the gist of what Heraclitus is saying is that some things stay the same only by changing. His, one of his most famous quotes is that no man ever steps in the same river twice. Are we, there's are ever we sure he change. said that? That's what I got from Wikipedia. I'm pretty sure Pocahontas said that. <laughs> I think Heraclitus was quoting Pocahontas. Oh, okay. okay, that makes more sense to me then. <laughs> I feel like this ties to the statues in the sense that there might be this 
pure truth that's already existing within them and those sort of stay the same or come to the surface only through the journey they go through on the film. They stay the same or come to light only by changing. And it's kind of an emotional roller coaster. Now I'm bouncing to the kind of towards the end of my plot thing. The things have to change in order to stay the same. You know, by now, probably the same for you. Call Me By Your Name, I've seen like 30 times or something. And it, But I always notice new things every time I watch it. And something that stood out this round is that the first scene is Elio with Marzia, or the first scene with humans. Mm-hmm. And not like that is the major relationship throughout the film, but even as a minor character, Marzia's there right when it starts, and she's there right when it ends as well. Yeah, she's fairly important. So in a way, you know, in terms of their friendship slash relationship, things certainly changed a lot, and they went through a lot together. But if to stay the same, if that sameness is them being important parts of each other's lives and being friends and supporting each other, they did change in order to stay the same, or they did need to change in order to stay the same. And certainly his relation, Elio's relationship with his parents, um, who seem like the coolest parents in the world, sidebar. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're good to him and warm and loving throughout the entire film. And it stays the same by changing them, seeing their son go through this experience and being that support system for him he needed to change and go through this journey in order for his parents' role, his parents' place in his life to stay the same and not become disconnected from them. Do you have any thoughts around other things that change in order to stay the same, kind of looking at the beginning of the movie versus the end? By the, by the end of the film, um, when the parents are talking about the next um, assistant to come over for the summer, it's notable that they're talking about a girl this time around rather than another young male student and you could read it multiple ways one of which is just they know that elio is going to be too upset by having someone that's not oliver coming over that next summer and so they'll have they're taking away the opportunity for him to fall in love again but at the same time he's already had a relationship with marcia there is still the possibility he might have a relationship with the next one but it's it's interesting that like they're changing the gender of the assistant, but they're still keeping that idea that, oh yeah, I need an assistant around to help me like catalog all these slides of statues. And it stays the same because, yeah, that's just the way they do things every summer, but it's different because now Elio can is older and wiser, and he can choose whether or not to to fall in love this time around. But we don't know that story yet because, it hasn't happened, and Andre Ackerman hasn't written it yet, so time will tell if he does fall in love again. But I think the important thing is also just that this was like a roller coaster of a summer for Elio, and regardless what happens next summer, like he has been changed forever by Oliver, by Marty in a sense too. Like they were both like young kids in love, if you could call it love, and they're going through these changes themselves but they they walk out of it slightly unscathed because like you said oliver not oliver elio and marcia are still friends by the end of the film and that's the important thing they they salvage the friendship from that weird like semi-breakup that happened when he went off with oliver 
For sure, that's a really good point. Kind of bouncing back down, I feel like we've knocked out art and sculptures pretty well. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts around language. We've talked, we've, we've touched on the fact that Elio speaks like 30 languages and, you know, most of the characters, most if not all the characters are multilingual. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack in all of that and how we communicate with each other. Yeah, I think it's important also, there's that one scene where um, Mrs. Perlman is reading a book to Elio and his father, and notably it's in German, which neither of them understand. So she has to read and translate from German into, I'm assuming, her native French or her native Italian, and then speak it aloud in English for the benefit of Professor Perlman and Elio. So there is a sense of like multiple translations going on, something might be lost. And so she's basically not giving a verbatim translation. She's kind of just paraphrasing it for them, saying, oh, this is what happens. And he's saying this, and he doesn't know this. And I feel like that scene is also a commentary on how the intent and purpose of words can be lost in translation. It's especially notable, we talked about earlier, with Oliver and Elio, when Oliver put his hand on Elio's shoulder. Oliver's intent with that was to gauge an interest, and Elio, who was still kind of closed off from Oliver, pulled away. And it's not until later on in the film that Oliver is saying, I thought I had molested you. He was so afraid that he had done something wrong. And the entire time, Elio was actually interested in him and just didn't know how to to convey that. And so, again, because we have these characters that are so multilingual, things can get lost in translation, and we see that happen at least twice in the film with the with the shoulder thing and also with the mother reading the book like she's paraphrasing just for the benefit of getting the point across without the finer details well and even with the theme of connection you know there's that kind of funny scene towards the end when it's a late night and oliver and elia are running around town and they stumble upon a couple who's parked their car and is dancing to love my way by the psychedelic furs Oliver's all excited. He pulls the woman aside to dance with her. And he's kind of chatting with her in Italian. But she replies back something like, Oh, we saw them in concert. We hitchhiked to London to go see them. And Oliver calls back to Oliver. I didn't understand any of that. (laughs) Yeah. But it's not in a negative way because he's trying to reach out and connect with this woman with whom he has a very shared interest. Um, but he doesn't have the means to do so yeah. or to take in what she's saying back. I think it also speaks positively to the universe universality of the music in the film. Like both of them are bonding over psychedelic furs and love my way. And they're both sharing their experience. And, you know, we as an audience, we get the, the advantage of subtitles. So we know what both of them are saying, but Oliver and the, the random Italian woman have no idea what they're talking about, but they are just, there they're just in that moment of sharing in the love and dancing to a song and they could be saying anything they want and they wouldn't understand it but just the fact that they can share in the joy of that music is what's bringing them together for that moment and you know that elio probably understands what both of them are saying anyway and he's not translating for them because he's too drunk to <laughs> well yeah and going back to the sensuality piece music is almost an intoxicating force throughout the movie um the scene when they're at like almost an outdoor dance club dancing to, I think, Lady, 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 and then Love My Way. 
is just drenched in colorful smoke, lasers. Um, and there's this really fun shot that starts with Oliver dancing on his own. It's slowly backing out and you see Elio kind of swoop in. He's doing his own little moves. Um, and kind of in a similar sense, you have all these people who probably are all speaking different languages, but they're brought together through this music and through this experience yeah, they're having together. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of um, back when um, Pleasure Island down here in Walt Disney World had nightclubs. Like, each club was specifically themed to, like, an era or a generation or a style of music. And so you'd know which club to go to for the kind of music you want to listen to. And without fail, no matter what time of year it was, if you ever went to 8-Tracks, you would always find the Disney parents there. Never any kids, just the Disney parents. And, like, it spoke specifically to them. And so, of course, Pleasure Island closed down and they re-themed everything. The only semblance of a dance club now is um, the Edison. And they have a live band there that does music. And a year ago or so, my friends and I went there just for fun. And quite literally, the only ones there that were our age was, like, the, 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 the help, the, the, the servers and the staff... Everyone else was just, like, random old business people on a conference. And so my friends and I are in the middle of the dance floor just dancing up a storm, and a whole bunch of, like, middle-aged people are all around us trying to, like, keep up with us. And watching the scene where Oliver is, like, doing his own thing and everyone else is doing their own thing reminded me of that because generationally, like, we're all enjoying the music, even though it's loud, noisy, rambunctious stuff that, like, on an average day, these parents would probably be like, oh my god, t- turn that nonsense down. But because it was in an enclosed space that everyone had to share, we were all just enjoying it and being a part of it. And I have a couple Snapchats of that night that are probably my only record of what happened because I don't remember otherwise. <laughs> and someday there'll be slides that Professor <laughs> Perlman is reviewing yes. and cataloging. Mm-hmm. Albert, a few months ago... You wrote a really great piece about some of the camera work, um, if you want to touch into that and how it plays around with perspective. Yeah, this was an article I wrote for my blog called, um, quite cheekily, it was called Three Backsides Over Northern Italy. But basically, my thesis of this is that there are specific moments in the film where we only see the action from the backside of Elio. And it's these key moments that help define him as a character. Because when you typically watch a film, traditionally the filmmaker will try to get coverage for every angle of a scene. That way they have options when they're editing. But Call Me By Your Name strengthens itself by only showing us these key moments from a backside perspective. And if you want, I can walk through every single moment, but I'll just focus on the ones that were in my blog. The first one, of course, is the one that starts off this whole thing. It's when Elio and Oliver meet. And you see it from Elio's backside. And so you don't see his reaction when he meets Oliver. And that's important because in the distance, you can kind of see his face in the mirror, but it gets obscured almost immediately. And that kind of sets off the the thread of what I call backside acting for Timothy Chalamet, where the fact that we're denied his response, his facial response, is what makes the end of the film all the more powerful. Because, again, the three moments... It doesn't start with that meeting, like that's what sets it off, but the three moments that define it is when Elio is changing to go swimming with Oliver, and you see him 
turn the corner in the bathroom, and for a second we just see Elio's backside. And then it cuts to him observing Oliver, and you see Oliver's backside. The point in that is that both of them are nude, they're both fully vulnerable to what might happen in the, in the future. And this trend also speaks to Elio's vulnerability, because throughout the next couple backside moments, Elio gets stronger in his sense of self, and he gets a better understanding of his vulnerability and how to how to use it, in a sense. So when Elio is talking to Oliver at the um, World War One memorial, it's a long tracking shot of just the two of them walking and talking, and you have Oliver in that distance again, just like when they first met, and Elio's backside is towards us. And so we can't ever really understand how Elio's feeling during this moment, but Oliver can because he has the benefit of that angle. And so Elio, fully clothed now, of course, is laying it all out for Oliver. He's he's saying in not so many words that he makes him weak at the knees and all the other love nonsense that goes on with them. And it's important that it's a backside moment because this is when Elio is actually speaking. And this is the only time that we actually have him speak during the, the backside acting. And he does so because he's trying to find the right words to convey this. And so by the last moment of backside acting, it's when Elio and Oliver leave. And this is a train station moment. It's very much like a classic Hollywood thing where you have the two lovers departing by the train. And Elio is standing still at this train while it's going off into the distance. And you just keep that camera on him. And so you never see his face. You never see how he's reacting to Oliver leaving. You just see the back of his head. And I call that the reverse Queen Christina, mainly because the end of Queen Christina, spoiler alert, is just a sh final shot of Greta Garbo at the, at the bow of the ship, and the camera zooms into her, and her face is so stoic that you don't know what she's feeling, and you have to draw that conclusion for yourself. And likewise, with Elio, we don't know what he's feeling, and we have to draw the conclusion for ourselves. And if we make the right conclusion, then we better understand the final shot of the film which is when we finally get to see Elio face the camera, face us, and all the emotions that he's been having for Oliver just come to a head, and you see him actually break down. And I just love that, whether conscious or not, Guadagnino was purposely giving us moments where we never see how Elio feels, all the, all the more to make his final shot more potent as a final shot and also as a way to understand Elio that everything he's held in, everything that he's shown only to Oliver is now available to the rest of us. And it kind of echoes the final lines of the novel as well. Look me in the face, hold my gaze, and call me by your name. And literally, it took everything in me when I was in the theater to not reach out and like pull a purple rose of Cairo and just jump into the film and like give him a hug and say it's going to be okay. Because that, that final shot just always gets me every time I watch it. Yeah, that was like beautifully said. I think when the movie first came out, a lot of people were talking about that final shot. I think more from the sense of how it's sheer length and what a performance Chalamet gives yeah. in those four minutes or however long. Mm -hmm. But I, yeah, I think to your point, the more you revisit it and you you catch, we really don't see him head on for very long. And most of his big moments, you see him from behind. Mm -hmm. And so it is almost like a thud that that shot lands on yeah. because it's so striking and so different from everything we've seen before. 
So it sounds like you like the movie. Oh, what yeah. are some of your big takeaways? <laughs> so one of my big takeaways of the film was actually um, inspired by a tweet from the actor Andy Mientis on Twitter after he had seen the film. He had wrote in, he had written tongue in cheek, "I apologize to any Elios I may have inadvertently Olivered." And one thing that struck me about that is that we're watching this love story unfold between two people that are able to acknowledge it and act on it. But for all we know, like within like the span of all our lives, there might have been moments where like we might have accidentally olivered someone and not even realized it. And we might have accidentally like been an Elio to something that never ever happened. And I just found it amusing that Mantis would take that as like his takeaway from the film. But at the same time, one of the more important takeaways is just that nothing's going to last forever, but it'll still be worth that pain and pleasure that comes with it. And I put a really long and drawn out quote from Beauty and the Beast on here that I don't have to read, but the, the basic thing about that is that you endure the pain to savor the moment of the joy. And finally, the last takeaway is a quote from Perks of Being a Wallflower that we accept the love we think we deserve. And like basically this film speaks to different aspects of love and how to recognize it, how to act on it. So whether or not you're the Elio or the Oliver in a love story, like know that there's going to be a joy to this that is going to be worth when it ends and worth revisiting in your older years and thinking back on it as like, oh, that summer and everything. But the point is just that the love that you share with someone is very important and that it might not be the same love that it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 minutes ago, but in the moment that you're sharing it, it's the most important thing in the world. For sure. I think that was kind of my big takeaway as well. Like the sort of like we discussed earlier around like kind of the art and language side, you know, there's so much beauty and so much to experience, even if there are, even if it might end or it might not go perfectly, does that mean we should restrain ourselves from feeling them or experiencing them? And even though it's a, it can be a tragic ending, you know, it's still a great love that Elio and Oliver experienced. You know, would the alternative have been for them to not go through that at all? They'd probably be more, they would probably be more miserable if they hadn't gone through it. For those who enjoyed Call Me By Your Name, is there another film you would recommend that has similarities or ties to it? Well, for me, I hardly recommend A Room With A View. It's directed by the screenwriter of Call Me By Your Name, James Ivory. It deals with some of the similar issues and themes, for example, this whole idea of a, a sexual and emotional awakening in Italy, except this time it's told from the point of view of a young girl from the early 1900s. Um, it features English-speaking boys who break hearts, and something that Ivory clearly loves is um, it features nudity. But it's done tastefully, and it's done in a way that speaks to the story, not necessarily just for the the salaciousness of it all. So A Room With A View I highly recommend, just because it combines a lot of what made Call Me By Your Name important for me, but it's done from an entirely different literary reading, and I guess even like reading as a cultural piece too. What about you, Stephen? What are your recommendations? One that really stood out to me is looking at Roberto Rossellini's Viaggio in Italia or Journey to Italy. The feelings of the film aren't exactly the same, but there's a particular sequence that really reminds me of Call Me By Your Name 
in which Ingrid Bergman, who's on a trip to Naples with her husband, played by George Sanders, she's touring like Mount Vesuvius and the archaeological sites nearby and is really taken aback by the petrified bodies, the sculptures um, and statues that she experiences and can't help but see herself and her marriage and her own kind of trapped life in the same vein as these bodies that are buried forever by the volcano. And even though it's a much darker reading of how we can engage with archaeology, um, I couldn't help but think of how the impact that kind of the past sort of has on us and how we can see ourselves in these ancient and classical works and how those parallel our own lives. Where can people find you on the social medias? Well, I have several social media options. Um, I'll just go in order of frequent frequency of use. Uh, the first one, unfortunately, is my often ignored blog. It's called I'll Be Seeing You. That's A-L-B-Y Seeing You. So just think of the old song, I'll Be Seeing You, except I'm seeing you instead. Um, I I try to write there at least once a month, but usually it just life gets in the way and I end up not doing that. Up next would be Twitter, where it's at Escapay, E-S-C-A-P-A-Y. Um, I try to be there at least once a week, and that doesn't always happen. And then Instagram is going to be Captain Escapé, and that's mainly just pictures of like life down here in Disney or my movie collection, honestly. But that's usually where you can find me. I'm also on Facebook, but that's mainly for family and friends, so don't worry about that. Cool. cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, okay, Albert. Well, thank you for having me. And until next time, ciao, amici. Ciao.